Hey, Malicious Life listeners, before we start the episode, I've got a special announcement. If you're going to the Black Hat Security event in Las Vegas this coming August, we've got great news for you. The Malicious Life team is holding a pre-game pool party at the Mandalay Hotel in Vegas with drinks and appetizers, relaxing, swimming, and an excellent opportunity to network with other Malicious Life fans. So you're invited. Head on to malicious.life slash party to register and save your spot today. Malicious.life slash party. See you in Vegas. Hi and welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ran Levy. You know, I always open the episodes with this line in collaboration with Cyberism. Well, two days ago, this collaboration thing became very useful in a rather surprising way. If you were to read the Wall Street Journal on June 25th, you'd come across an interesting headline about something called Operation Soft Cell. I know what you're thinking. Tainted love, right? Soft Cell were an English new wave duo that were pretty successful when I was a kid in the 1980s. That was a long time ago, sure, but hey, Freddie Mercury is back in fashion these days, so maybe they're having a comeback. No, that's not it. The cell in this soft cell stands for cell phones, and Operation Soft Cell is a very dramatic discovery announced just a few days ago by Liol Div, CyberReason's CEO and co-founder. This discovery, as I noted earlier, made headlines in many major publications around the world. Since I've been working with CyberReason on this podcast for a few years now and interviewed many of their researchers on various occasions, it gave me the opportunity to give you, the listeners, a rare inside look on how this discovery came to be from the actual people who made it. Let's jump right in. So everything started uh, almost a year ago uh, when uh, we onboarded uh, just another customer. This is Mo Levy, VP of Security Practices at CyberReason. And no, no relation. Levy is somewhat of a generic name for us Israelis, sort of like Smith or Johnson in the U.S. The client Mo was working with was a big telecommunications provider, a company which operates a cellular network. A year ago, the telecom's IT people noticed something strange going on. It looked as if someone was stealing information from their network, but none of their existing tools could detect anything malicious. So after a few days, uh, we started to see a few alerts triggered in, the, in their environment. And our SOC, they're the ones that are actually uh, analyzing those alerts. SOC stands for Security Operations Center, the people monitoring networks. They are like the first responders to the alerts that we're seeing in our platform. So they started to see those alerts and they already realized that something is not normal. Uh, it's not the regular alerts that they see on a daily basis. And then they decided to perform an escalation to the research team. What was different about these alerts that... seemed off? 
So first of all, within a few days, they received uh, several alerts, one talking about web show um, and others tied to that web show, which usually it means that there's some active attacker in the environment. A web shell is a script that is installed on a server and enables remote access to that server. Having an unknown web shell sitting on one of your servers is a sure sign that something is very, very wrong. It means someone has a backdoor into your network. So that was the abnormality of those alerts. And uh, this is where our research story begins. The team decided... It was time to call in Nocturnus. Nocturnus is CyberReason's research team. It is made of some of the company's brightest and most experienced researchers. One of them is Amit Silpel. Some of our listeners might recognize the name. We had Amit on our show before, and he also made some headlines in 2017 when he single-handedly managed to stop the notorious NotPetya attack. He is an ex-Israeli intelligence project leader and an expert in malware analysis and reverse engineering. So I got involved, I think, a few days after we, and by we I mean the company, started to look into um, the environment of that company uh, we were looking into. The team saw some uh, anomalies over there in the environment, um, large amounts of data that's being transferred. Um, all sorts of weird-looking commands running on various um, various servers. And um, one of the team members asked me to um, help with some reverse engineering um, of those files. So I think at this point we were perhaps two days into the, uh, into the investigation. What Amit found was actually a legitimate software, a trusted and signed application by Samsung. This application, however, loaded into memory another file, which, based on its activity, seemed highly suspicious. The code that we saw um, had the ability to um, upload files, download files, change files on the file system, change registry keys. It had the ability to take screenshots, to, um, uh, to, to do key logging. Basically, it was a full-featured uh, rat. Why would a legitimate software load and execute malicious code? Digging deeper into the code, Amit found his answer. The attackers were using a technique known as DLL sideloading. What is DLL sideloading? Well, it's a surprisingly easy technique to explain. Say you're visiting a friend. You open his refrigerator and you see a tasty-looking chocolate bar. You eat the chocolate, and then a few minutes later, your friend opens the fridge and asks, Hey guys, did anyone touch my chocolate laxatives? As part of its normal behavior, the Samsung application needs to load a certain file, which it expects to find in a specified folder. When it finds the file, it loads it into memory and executes its content. Except that just like the chocolate bar you've just eaten, the file it actually loads only looks like the real thing. The crooks replaced the original DLL file with a new one with the same name. The Samsung app loads the malicious file and runs its code. And um, I think after a couple of hours, we have determined that this is uh, a rat that's called Poison Ivy. 
Poison Ivy is a very well-known remote access trojan, first identified way back in 2005. Although ancient in cybersecurity terms, Poison Ivy continues to be a popular choice for APT groups around the world because it's a very sophisticated and effective malware. We, we, we then determined that, okay, this is, this, is not, this is not something that we can brush off or this is not like some case of commodity malware. The fact that it's a telco and they have large amounts of data exfiltrated out of them by a program that appears to be a legitimate Samsung application, something, something is off. We then saw another indication on one of the machines that had Poison Ivy running on. It was another program that's running, and we, we didn't understand at the beginning what it was. We just saw, it's, uh, we saw that it's running. We saw that it's accepting connections from one network and that it's sending packets to a different network. So when we tried to find what this program was, we couldn't find anything. The, 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 its, it's file hashes returned nothing on VirusTotal. It was completely unknown. This requires some explaining. Remember that the attacker's goal here is to evade the automatic detection systems protecting the network. One of the ways these protection systems detect malicious software is by analyzing the files on the network and computing their hash values. What is a hash? You can think of hashing as a kind of a meat grinder, a machine that takes a piece of meat as an input and outputs a blob of ground or minced meat. In our case, the input is a file and the output is a number. And most importantly, the number at the output is unique for each file. If you change even a single character of text inside a file, for example, the hash number at the output will be different. It's as if changing some small parameter in our piece of meat, say its size or thickness, causes the ground meat at the output to be in very different color. Detection tools use this mechanism to pinpoint malicious software. When some new malicious software is discovered, its hash is calculated, and when some suspect file is discovered in the future, its hash is compared to the already known malware. If the hashes are identical, we can be certain that the files are identical as well. In this case, when Amit compared the new malware he found on the server the one moving packets between different networks inside the client's IT environment, to previously discovered malware, he found nothing. It was a completely new malware, and so he didn't have a clue as to what it was doing. After, again, doing some analysis, um, I, I, I got a copy of this, of this program, and I ran it in, in, in one of my uh, test machines, and it was just spewing out really weird uh, debug messages like you couldn't really understand like it it, it showed on the screen um, C F E exclamation point debug strings are just simple text alerts that a program can print to the screen usually to notify its developer of certain events going on inside the software such as connection error or connection established and I got all of those weird obscured messages that I didn't understand what they what they were um, so I started reverse engineering the, the program and trying to understand what those messages mean. So I found in the disassembled code, I found all of the functions that are printing those messages. And then I had, um, and then I had to figure them out. So for like, 
I think a good two hours. I spent like a good two hours in trying to figure out what it means. And I kept sharing my notes with the rest of the team and, and with Asaf, of course. Asaf is Asaf Dahan, another member of the Nocturnus team and an experienced offensive security expert. Asaf was in Japan at the time, while Amit was in Boston. Despite the extreme time difference, the two team members worked side by side, trying to figure out what this new malware was doing inside the client's network. And then Asaf says, oh, you know what? It looks familiar. Hold on. And he sends me a link to a GitHub uh, page with a, project that, with a project that's called HTRAN. HTRAN is actually a well-known tool that allows attackers to easily bridge connections between different networks. Using HTRAN, the attackers were able to connect to servers deep inside the client's IT environment, like explorers using suspended bridges between treetops to reach deep inside a thick jungle. The question is, how did the attackers manage to make HTRAN, an already familiar malware, invisible to detection systems monitoring the network? The answer, by simply changing the debug strings. Changing these strings doesn't change the actual functionality of the program in any significant way. But as I explained earlier, it does change the calculated hash of the file. It's like changing the license plate number of a stolen car. It's still the same car, except now, if you're a cop looking for this particular vehicle, it's much harder to find. So I then started comparing the disassembled code that I have on my screen, and I compared that to the, to the source code that I was looking at on this page that Asaf shared with me, and I realized that it's the same thing. So Asaf actually, Asaf was spot on. All of those weird messages that I saw when I saw CE, CFE, all of those weird messages that had no meaning were actually the, the error messages that were changed by the attackers in the source code. So um, various antiviruses wouldn't be able to catch this program and various researchers would be thrown off. So they removed all the other letters in the word and just used the first word. So connection established is CE. Having discovered the attacker's modus operandi, Amit and the Nocturnus team managed to stop the attack and remove the malicious code from the servers. A few months went by and nothing happened. At this point in time, the researchers had no idea what would happen next. Maybe the attackers had abandoned their scheme. Maybe they'd already got what they were after. Who knew? Mo, Amit, and their colleagues moved on to other projects. But the attackers, it turned out, were not so easily scared. This is the second wave, and this time they're getting uh, a bit more deeper into the network. It seems like they know exactly what they're after. In the second attack, in the second wave, We saw the attackers coming back, and it's been a while. It's been, um, it's been a few weeks. It's been like two months in between waves. And uh, the attackers came back, and they've used a modified version of the web shell that they've used before. Um, again, for the same reasons that I mentioned before about HTRAN, they modified some things. This time, they were starting to compromise more servers. So... They've already had a way in through that web shell. So they would get in, 
and they would use a, a, um, a customized and modified version of Mimikatz. Uh, Mimikatz is a tool that extracts um, um, authentication tokens. So that could be passwords, um, hashes, Kerberos tickets, pretty much um, almost any form of authentication that Windows uh, supports. Mimikatz uh, has the ability to extract extract these authentication um, tokens out of memory. Uh, they then scanned the, the network around that web server to see which machines are accessible. Once they've had a list of machines, a list of IP addresses, um, they started trying to um, authenticate into these, to these machines using those credentials that they have dumped from the web server. Once they have authenticated, they basically repeated the entire process. They dumped the creds, and then they scanned all the machines around the newly hacked machines, got a list of more IP addresses, and then ladder rinse repeat. And by that time, they had um, quite a nice amount of um, of usernames and passwords. This is we saw we saw it as it was happening, almost live. I think we saw it like minutes after it happened. Like we were following the incident as it ha- as it happens. We we've seen the attackers okay. typing the actual commands. This cat and mouse game went on for several more months and two more waves of attacks. Each time, Amit and the Nocturnist team managed to detect the intrusion in the network and remove the malware, the attackers backed off, laid low for a few months, and then returned equipped with better tools and better knowledge of the network's structure and weaknesses. Eventually, down the line, they did get uh, a domain admin hash. One of those machines that they were targeting had a domain admin logged in. Now, if you have a domain admin logged in and you gain access to their privileges, it's pretty much game over because you can do whatever you want with the network because you, you now possess the highest privilege possible. That was the point where they stopped just like moving around from machine to machine, but they, okay, let, they, it's like they said, okay, now it's time for business. And the business here was the attackers taking control of a major database inside the client's network and extracting hundreds of gigabytes of information. But what kind of information? The researchers didn't have a clue. The stolen information was heavily encrypted. So the Nocturnus team scoured the compromised network, found the actual component of the malware that did the encryption, and reverse-engineered it to find the encryption key. They decrypted the stolen information, fully expecting to find a dump of credit card numbers, IDs, and all the usual financial data that cyber crooks often exfiltrate from big organizations. But here, they had their first huge surprise. It turned out the information stolen had nothing to do with financial records. In fact, it didn't even come from the client's business network at all. The information actually came from the telco's operational network, the IT network in charge of operating the cellular communication network, the actual cellular antenna towers. The encrypted information contained hundreds of gigabytes of CDR data. What's CDR? Molevi explains. So CDR, it stands for uh, call details records. Um, and this type of data is data that every telco company in the world has. Um, it basically stores the originating uh, uh, phone number that called you. 
and the destination phone number, the duration of the calls, the cell towers that you're connected to, any text messages that you send and so on. And many people got confused. It's not like they're listening to the content of the calls. It's more of metadata on the traffic of the calls. With this CDR metadata, one could track the telco's customers' every action on the network and learn a great deal about each customer's daily routine. For example, say you were tracking my CDR data. Tracking my CDR information would tell you that I often like to write in a small coffee shop not too far from my office. Knowing this, you could concentrate your efforts on compromising this coffee shop's Wi-Fi network and use it as a stepping stone for future attacks. By the way, don't bother, I never use public Wi-Fi networks, and if you've listened to enough malicious life episodes, you probably don't either. But why would anyone be interested in the daily routine of millions of cellular customers? I mean, if you're Google or Facebook, this kind of information could be valuable for advertising and such, but it hardly justifies the risk and effort involved in a hacking operation of this magnitude. We're talking about attackers who, over the course of months or even years, went through the trouble of creating a quote-unquote shadow IT for the actual IT network of the telco an elaborate infrastructure that gave them complete control over the telco's network. Why would anyone invest so much time and effort? It just doesn't make sense. The answer became apparent when the researchers started examining the actual content of the CDR data. It turns out our attackers were not after millions or even thousands of customers, they only tracked 20 people. Yes, that's right. 20 people. That's all. This was the moment when the alarm bells started going off in Amit, Mo, and Asaf's heads. Only nation-states would invest so much time and effort in tracking down 20 individuals. This was not your run-of-the-mill cybercrime operation. This was a cyber espionage operation. An APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, Attack. Hi, I'm Lior Div, the CEO and co-founder of Cyberism. So usually they are uh, super resourceful and usually they're not coming to me. Uh, when there is something that they believe uh, and uh, I'm lucky that I have such an experienced team uh, and when they believe that something uh, in this type of magnitude is going to happen or they have a hunch something is this is starting to develop, uh, then I'm engaged as well. The fact that Operation Softcell targeted only 20 individuals, tracking their daily routine over a long period of time, clued Leo that his company was dealing with a major event. As CEO, Leo Div probably does little actual hacking these days, but years ago, he was a decorated officer in 8200, an elite Israeli army cyber intelligence unit, and he led many cyber intelligence operations. He knew from experience that when someone tracks the daily routine of an individual in such depth and scale, well, let's just say that it doesn't usually end well for that individual. It could be a matter of life and death. 
usually kind of the first wave and the second wave, they dealt with it and they really, you know, they don't need my help. <laughs> um, and when they see that we're talking about, uh, in this case, it's, it's actually an espionage case and, and there is a people alive, maybe in danger, this is where I'm getting involved. The software tools used in the soft cell attack pointed at one clear potential threat actor, APT-10. APT-10 is a very familiar name for cybersecurity researchers. It is a Chinese cyber espionage group that over the last 10 years or so has targeted many American, European and Japanese construction and engineering firms, mainly for purposes of military and industrial espionage. APT-10 is also known for its close ties with the Chinese government. But although it certainly seemed as if APT-10 was behind the attack, it doesn't mean that APT-10 were necessarily the culprits. Liu and his people fought twice, even three and four times, before placing blame on any one particular party. It's super sensitive and uh, we are... <clears throat> trying to be super responsible when uh, we attribute something uh, like this magnitude to, to a country or to a specific group. We managed to see that all the indication is driving us to the conclusion that this is APT-10. But uh, in every conversation, we added another caveat to, to this, and we said the conclusion and the correlation was so good that this is APT-10 to all the information that exists out there that or APT-10 did not care to be uh, discovered or somebody um, basically used their tactic and technique and tried to disguise themselves as APT-10. While all this was going on, the Nocturnus team was conducting another investigation in parallel, this time an intelligence gathering operation. They had in their possession the actual malware tools used by the attackers, and so they started looking around for other places where these tools were used. So we started, you know, to look look them up everywhere across our other customers' base to see if they are affected, as well as online to see which information exists on those uh, artifacts online. And we were able to identify similar tools which were slightly modified. That's how we revealed the additional companies that were involved. And when Moore is talking about additional companies being involved, she's talking about another major surprise for the researchers. When Cyber Reason's investigators tried matching their findings with other threats and malwares encountered elsewhere in the world, they discovered the actual control infrastructure, the proxy server used by the attackers in Operation Softcell. By analyzing this infrastructure, they came to realize that the attack they uncovered was actually only a part of a much larger cyber espionage campaign against many other telecommunications providers around the world. Twelve global telcos with hundreds, maybe billions of customers worldwide. What seemed like a big cyber espionage operation turned out to be an espionage operation of massive scale, one of the largest ever unearthed in the history of cybersecurity.
Now they had a different kind of challenge. Here was one single cybersecurity company out of Tel Aviv and Boston that had to notify all those huge telecommunications corporations, most of which they had no connection to whatsoever, and convince them that they are the victims of one of the largest cyber espionage campaigns in history. Sounds simple? Not at all. And then I guess you reached out to them, right? What was their response? Of course. It was a very mixed response. In some cases, uh, people just ignored us because, you know, they didn't want to believe or they just didn't believe. In other cases, we got on a call, we provided them with a full analysis report and never heard back from them. In other cases, we got yelled at. So <laughs> Why would anyone yell at you for actually giving them valuable information? Um, put yourself, you know, in their position for a second and think about it that someone that worked for a cybersecurity vendor, uh, reach out to you. And we reached out through, you know, LinkedIn and whatever we could find online because we didn't have direct connections with people. So we reached out to them and, uh, for them, it was a very strange call because, you know, they do not know us personally. This is the first time we're talking to them. So for them, it could sound like someone is trying to do fraud or to blackmail them. You know, it's not a tactic that uh, people uh, didn't use for social engineering. So you can understand why people are a bit uh, anxious about it. Clearly, APT10, or whoever was behind the operation, were not going to give up. Lior knew that the only way to stop Operation Softcell once and for all was to expose it to the world, which, as I said in the beginning of the episode, he did last week on stage in a security conference in Tel Aviv. Once you announced that case, Operation Softcell, what were the responses around the world that you received? The amount of feedback and good feedback that we got from everywhere um, all the way from starting from different countries all over the world that contact us with their search and their uh, cyber unit all the way to I believe that by now we debriefed probably uh, more than uh, 70 70 different telco uh, in the world and we're still counting to give them kind of the information and instruction how to deal with this type of situation. So I believe that uh, many of the people that I discussed with were very grateful that we shared the information and very grateful that uh, we helped them in some cases to, to find this type of attacker in their net. If there's something Operation Softcell shows us, it's how extremely vulnerable our current cellular technology infrastructure is. We know that this critical system is under constant threat. Roughly a quarter of cellular providers around the world have reported being the target of APT attacks in the past. Here we see exactly how dangerous these attacks can be. The attackers had complete control of the compromised network, down to the last authentication credentials. Had they wanted to, the attackers could have shut down the entire cellular network with just one press of a button. Operation Softcell is also a powerful demonstration of one of the basic assumptions in cybersecurity. No one, no matter how powerful and diligent, is immune to APT attacks. At the end of the day, I do believe that 
if this is a nation state behind it, they will get the information no matter what. They will find their way, you know. It could be in the cyberspace world and it could be in the uh, human intelligence. I think that it's very hard to uh, protect against uh, nation states. No, I think that uh, it's important to emphasize the kind of that this is a situation that somebody deciding in a very systematic manner um, to create a capability or almost an asset uh, to track people. This capability to track any person everywhere uh, in the world, this is something that uh, it, it's never heard uh, before. No, nobody builds something like this. So we're talking about the situation that a foreign country has an ability to track every civilian in another country and can have a big reach to everywhere in the world. With 8 billion cellular customers around the world, almost no one is protected against this kind of cyber espionage. That's it for this episode. A big thanks to our producers, Nate Nelson and Eliad Kimchi, for their help in making this episode happen in such a short notice. And of course, a big thanks to our guests, Amit Serper, Mo Levy, and Lior Div. A full transcript of this episode is available, as always, on our website, malicious.life. You can find me at, at @ranlevi on Twitter, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, and ran at ranlevy.com is the email address. You can also follow at malicious.life for future updates and new episodes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.